Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. All right. Well, good morning. John 3.16, as translated in the ESV, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's probably one of the more famous verses in the Bible. And with these few words, the Bible tells us that the turning point for humanity was when God decided out of love to give us his son. And ultimately, we know later in the Gospel of John, later in the other Gospel records, that son died on the cross for our sins. So in other words, uh, many of us who live uh, after the cross, who've become Christians, the whole history of humanity hinges on this one event. It hinges on the death of Jesus. It hinges on the cross and how the world has changed because of that. So the, all of history changed in that one moment. Now the rest of the New Testament, of course, picks up on this message and we call that message the gospel. I'll just give you a couple of examples here. Read Romans 5 real quick here, verses 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, then to the twelve. Just to tell you that's not a Pauline thing only, John says it this way in 1 John 4. He says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. So this thread throughout the New Testament is very clear that there's this one moment in history that we all look to, and it changes everything. And that moment is the cross. The fact that there was a man named Jesus that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for us, that he was raised on the third day, and that he is coming back again to restore God's good creation. These facts are central to the Christian faith. And it really does all come down to the simple truth contained in John 3.16. And because of what Jesus did, now we identify with the cross. We identify as the people of the cross. We, for example, carry our crosses daily, as Jesus told us to do. We consider our old lives as gone or dead, as Paul exhorts us to do in Romans. We give in self-sacrificial ways, just as our Lord Jesus did. And when we come into the family of God, we're welcomed into the family of God through the atoning sacrifice given at the cross. We are literally sons of God through the cross. But the question that we're going to ask ourselves in this series that we're beginning this morning, the series that we are talking about the the theme of the Exodus throughout Scripture, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what about our brothers and sisters who lived before the cross? How did they identify themselves? How did they know about God's love for them? How did they relate to God? What event changed the course of history so dramatically that they could identify with God how God acted in that particular moment of time, like we see how God acted in the cross? And as we'll we'll see in the series, the ancient Hebrews or the ancient Israelites, they were people of the Exodus, just like we are people of the cross. And Yahweh, our God, who now is the God who sent his son to die on the cross for us, 
and the God who raised him from the dead and all the other things that it says about that in scripture. In what we call the Old Testament, he's known as the God of the Exodus. That's how he's known. Now, just to point out real quick here before we make the transition to the Exodus, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we use the term cross generally. It's a way to indicate everything that Jesus did. Uh, His miraculous birth, his sinless life, his teachings, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his current ministry, and his future ministry as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We sort of sum all of that up together in the gospel message, and we can sort of assign the same word to it. It all, history changes for us at the cross. That's the moment when history changes. So when we think about the Exodus, well, what was the Exodus? Well, just like using the term cross, the Exodus refers to a series of events that transformed a specific particular group of people about 3,500 years ago that started off in Egypt and ended up uh, years later in what we now call Israel. When we open to the book of Exodus, we find the people of God called the Hebrews or Israelites, uh, they've been in slavery for a period of time. Egypt was once a friendly landing spot for the people of God, but that is sadly no longer the case. And we want to point out that they're not just slaves in the sense that they have limited freedom in a cultural or societal sense, although that's certainly true, and they were abused in unspeakable ways. That's, all, all those things are true. But they're not just uh, limited in freedom in a cultural or societal sense. The point that gets made repeatedly in the Exodus story is that they're also not free to worship and serve God the way that they want to worship and serve God. So while it is true that the Exodus uh, story is about freedom from slavery, that is part of the puzzle, we must understand that it's also about freedom, and that freedom is not freedom to just to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> They're going to try to do whatever they want to do, and it's not going to work out for them. But the freedom is to serve and worship God. And just like with the cross, where we recognize you know, several key attributes, several key events, aspects, uh, things of, uh, about Jesus' life that have already happened, things that are still to come in Jesus' life. Uh, the Exodus encompasses many different events. And each individual event, each stopping point along the way, tells a part of the story of Exodus. So is the Exodus about the plagues? Yeah, we're going to talk about the plagues. Is it about the Red Sea or actually more accurately Reed Sea crossing? Yes, we're going to get to the Red Sea or Reed Sea crossing here shortly. Is it about this dramatic moment where God makes a covenant with his people on the mountain? Yes, it's about all of those things. These images, these stories, these moments in history will have such a profound impact on this ancient Israelite group of people that they will be remembered, rehearsed, and reimagined for centuries to come. And as I said earlier, Yahweh is defined in the Old Testament as the God who brought his people out of Egypt. And this this is just a short, very short list. I didn't include any of the Psalms. There's like tons and tons of Psalms that talk about God this way. This is just a brief, uh, short version of where the Bible talks about God as being the God of the Exodus. And I just want to point out that these books from, from Deuteronomy all the way to Nehemiah, they span almost a thousand years. So you're talking about a thousand years of history where people consistently come back to this moment of Exodus, and they identify God as the one who 
is the God of the Exodus, who brought his people out of Egypt. During this thousand-year period of time after the Exodus and before the closing of what we call the Old Testament canon, the people of God will face new challenges time and time again. And when they face these challenges time and time again, they will remind themselves of the God who made a way in the wilderness, a God who parted the sea, a God who defeated the Elohim, the gods of Egypt. These later references to the Exodus can be called echoes. So you have the initial Exodus moment. You actually sort of have pre-echoes in some of the biblical stories in the book of Genesis, which is really interesting too. But then once that Exodus moment happens, there are moments later in the story where these same themes get used over and over again. They get appealed to over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. And you might think that it stops when Jesus comes, but no, the theme of Exodus carries all the way through until the very end of the book of Revelation, as we'll find in this series. So simply defined, an echo is a later reference to an earlier biblical event. The term is just like an audio echo. You can imagine if you're standing, for example, at the base of this canyon, and you yelled out a word like compass. You might hear compass, 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 compass. That's the echo, right? It's the reverberation of that audio as it's bouncing off the walls of the canyon. Similarly, you have this moment in time that's so dramatic and so profound Exodus, and then in the rest of the Bible, it reverberates again and again and again. So the Exodus was so powerful that it becomes one of the major themes throughout all of Scripture. I, I think it's probably the second most important theme in Scripture. Uh, last year at this time, when we were first starting our church, we talked about the kingdom of God. We went through a series on the kingdom of God that led us to uh, Easter last year. And the kingdom of God, I believe, is the main theme of the Bible. It's the idea that God will restore his creation in eternity. The idea that he has a plan to make everything wrong with the world right again. And I want to you know, propose this to you at the beginning. We'll see if you think this is true by the end of the series. But I want to propose to you that the way that God does this, the way that God brings restoration, the way that God uh, brings about this plan that he has, called, that we call the kingdom of God, the way that he does that is through Exodus. This is the means by which he does the, the, these things. God accomplishes his plan of restoration through Exodus. He brings his people out from slavery and into the promised land, away from service to the powers and towards the temple, a place of pure service and pure worship. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that what we'll find in the weeks and months ahead is that this story of a group of people leaving slavery 3,500 years ago in Egypt to go into the promised land to serve God, to find freedom to serve and worship God, first in the wilderness and then in the land of promise, this story of Exodus is not just about them. It's about us too. This story of freedom, of redemption, of struggle, of pain and disappointment, of obedience and then disobedience and then obedience again and then disobedience again, <laughs> of glory and of lack. This is our story too. Now, as we go through different stops along the way, you might find yourself identifying with one stop a lot and one stop not as much, or you might be like, oh yeah, I can recognize times in my life where I went through this or I went through that. Um, 
But what we're going to find, I think, in each stop along the way is that so much of our Christian lives that we enjoy today are quite literally echoes of this exodus. So this morning, I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, Hundreds of years before the exodus, God calls a man. His name was Abram. Abram had his faults. He had many faults, actually. But one of the amazing things about Abram is that he had the ability to trust in what God said and to obey. So God tells Abram to go to a land, a land that he's never seen before, and take his whole household with him. And Abram does that. He goes. And eventually, God gives Abram a new name. We now know him as Abraham. And he gets a supernatural son in his old age, the, the boy named Isaac. Now, Isaac eventually has a son named Jacob, who has 12 sons. Jacob's, one of his younger sons, Joseph, is a righteous man, but his brothers are jealous, so they almost kill him. And mercifully, they don't kill him. They just do the next best thing, which is sell him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt. So years later, after Joseph waits through this period of trial, he, uh, he ends up as a slave, then he ends up in prison, then he gets pulled out of prison to interpret a dream by Pharaoh. Uh, He does it by the power of God. Pharaoh recognizes his ability and his wisdom. He gets elevated to be second command of all of Egypt. Now, during the time that Joseph foretold this famine that he said would come to pass, uh, everyone in that part of the world came to Egypt because Egypt was the only place that had food. So lo and behold, who shows up on Joseph's doorstep years and years and years after they sold him into slavery? But his brothers. His brothers end up there. There's this sort of period of testing where Joseph sort of tests his brothers and sees where they are. And then eventually he accepts them back as brothers and he invites them down. And the whole tribe, the small tribe of of Israel at that point, which was like 70 people in the household, plus perhaps servants and extended family and things like that, uh, they all moved to Egypt. And then Jacob dies in Egypt and then Joseph dies in Egypt. And over time, uh, that group of people grows. And so the book of Exodus begins by telling us that a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph anymore rises to power and God continued blessing these people through all this time. God continues blessing his people. They continue growing, but that is what Egypt is concerned about. They don't want this growing group of Israelites to take them over. And so they put them into slavery. That's their response. They say, we don't want them to join a war against us, so we're going to force them to do you know, work for us so that they don't have the time or the energy to rebel against us. And so they make bricks and work hard, and um, the Egyptians abuse uh, the Israelites in all sorts of ways. And we find out early on in the book of Exodus that one of the ways that they abuse them uh, is by uh, trying to kill the male babies, and they do this a couple different ways. But what's interesting about this is uh, all through this period of time, God is not the God of the Red Sea crossing. He's not the God of plagues. He's not the God of showing up on a mountain and speaking very like audibly to the people, but God's still there. But what he's doing is very subtle. He's working through righteous women. Like for example, these two midwives that tell the Pharaoh, oh, these, these Israelite women, they're giving birth before we can even get there. They're so strong. So they lie to this Pharaoh. They stand up to probably the most powerful man in the world, these two Hebrew women, and save these boys' lives. Uh, We find uh, Moses' mom. The edict was given that, okay, well, if the midwives aren't going to do anything about it, then we're going to have them throw the baby boys into the Nile then. And we find Moses' mother obeying the command after she builds a boat for her boy. (laughs) She throws them into the water. 
She obeys the command. Uh, she just builds an ark, actually. That's the word used. It's only used in Noah's ark, and it's used here. She builds an ark for her baby boy. And through the water, her baby boy, Moses, survives. We find young Miriam, who might have been six years old, uh, trailing behind her brother, making sure that he's taken care of, speaking to someone who was vastly superior to her in that culture, Pharaoh's daughter, and offering encouragement, steering her along the path of putting Moses back with his family, where he was raised for the first couple of years of his life with his mom and his family. And then we find Pharaoh's daughter, who ignores her father's commands to kill the baby boys of the Hebrews, and instead brings him into her family. So all these women are working, God is working with these women to, uh, to do powerful things, to dismantle the works of Pharaoh and evil that's going on in the society right now. So God is still there. He's still at work, but it's in very subtle, hardly perceptible ways. Now, later in the story, we find out that Moses grows up in Egypt in the house of Pharaoh, but he still somehow knows that he is tied to this Hebrew group of people. At 40 years old, he murders an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating an Israelite slave. Um, People find out about that that's what he did. Uh, Pharaoh finds out about it. He wants to kill Moses, so Moses has to flee. He has to leave town, and he goes out into the wilderness in a place called Midian. Uh, When he gets to Midian, he arrives at a well, and generally what happens if you uh, high-level sort of skim like the book of Genesis, uh, when a man of God goes to a well, what does he usually do? He finds a wife, (laughs) and this is what Moses does. Uh, The daughters of Jethro, uh, the Midianite priest, uh, show up. Uh, There are some shepherds that try to abuse these women, and Moses runs them off. And uh, the women, thinking that he's just like this random Egyptian, don't invite him over for dinner. But they go home and tell their father Jethro, and Jethro says, wait, you were saved by this guy? They're like, yeah, this random Egyptian, he like helped us. And they're like, he's like, well, why isn't he eating with us right now? And so they go find Moses, and they bring him in. And Jethro's like, hey, you want to marry one of my daughters? And that's how it goes. So that's how he ends up marrying his wife, Zipporah. This is the story that we get told in the first two chapters of of Exodus. And it's tempting to say that God isn't there because we don't really hear anything about God directly acting in any way. We see hints and and subtle uh, shadows, perhaps, of things happening. But I want to read these last couple verses of chapter 2 before we get into the burning bush episode in chapter 3. Because we, tend, we want to tend to think that God shows up in chapter 3. And I think in a large part that is true, in a large way that is true, that God does show up in a way in which he has not shown up in chapters 1 and 2 at the burning bush. But I think there's a really important learning point for us here at the end of Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It's talking about the time in which Moses was in Midian. During those many days, which is approximately 40 years, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now, there's four things that says God does in response to that. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. Final thing, and God knew. I just think about this. Uh, 
uh, in our lives. Uh, there have probably been moments in our lives when we've gone through things and we we're like, where is God in all of this? What is God doing? And I can tell you that during those times, if you cry out to God, he's going to hear your groaning. He's going to remember the covenant that he made with Abraham and that got ratified into the, brought into the new covenant with, with Jesus. He's going to see you and he's going to know you. Even before he starts working, even in the time of waiting, he will do those things for you. So what do we do when we go through periods of suffering and loss? It can be tempting to question the existence of God in those times. I know I've done it. I'm sure you've done it too. Now, in the case of these ancient Israelites, we're honestly unsure how much they even knew about God because there are hundreds of years ago between Joseph and Moses, uh, there was no Bible. There was nothing written down at this time uh, for them to know. It's unclear exactly how much they knew about God in the first place, but Regardless, in their suffering, they chose to cry out to him. They did know to do that, and they did that. They cried out to God. And God had promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham's children. And when it says that God remembered his covenant, what that means is God was going to make good on that covenant. He was going to do his part. Now, by doing this, Yahweh would enter into closer relationship with his people. He would show the people more of who he is and what he is about. And so, when we think about this in our lives... There are moments where we go through periods of darkness, periods of suffering, periods where we're wondering where God is and why he isn't doing what we want him to do, what we think about, what, he, what we think he should be doing. And then there are times when God shows up in dramatic ways. We have to be able to handle both of those times in our lives. Chapter 3, verse 1, the burning bush. So God shows up in the way that we expect him to. Cecil B. DeMille, we get the, the shining lights, and we get the fire, and we get the burning bush, and we get all the cool stuff. Here we go, chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping his flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, verse 1 basically says, Moses was minding his own business and his, father's, his father-in-law's business. But God interrupted him. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses gets curious. What's going on over here? Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw he turned aside to see, God called to him out of a bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, as I think about this, um, 
I think about from Moses' perspective, very briefly, we're going to think about more about Moses' perspective next week, but from Moses' perspective, everything up to verse 10 sounds great. God's going to show up. He's showing up now. He's finally going to do what we want him to do. He's going to show up. And then God gets to the part where he says, I will send you to Pharaoh. That's not what Moses wanted to hear. <laughs> so God tells Moses he has seen the affliction. He's seen the suffering. God is ready to do something about it. Moses is going to have an important role to play in that happening. His whole life, his miraculous survival as a baby, his childhood in the court of Egypt, his desire to help the Israelite people, his willingness to obey God, it's all coming together in one powerful, spectacular moment. But God still has to show Moses something more. He has to show him something more about who he is and what he's about. And we're going to find that Moses has some questions for God, too. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, I love, I love when we see but God, right? And here's but Moses. <laughs> but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, we might, we might think, you know, like God's going to follow up with like, oh man, look, you grew up in the court of Egypt. You understand how the court of Egypt works. Like you're an incredibly humble guy. I can see your heart. You're incredibly humble. Like there's all these things, all these qualities that Moses has that makes him basically like the perfect choice to be this guy, that's not what God responds with, though. God responds with, he doesn't say, oh, Moses, like you're, so I want to encourage you. I want to make you feel good about yourself. He said, and this is the important part here, but I, he's Yahweh speaking, I will be with you. That's all Moses needs to know. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord or Yahweh. When we see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So here, God tells Moses, even though there's all these qualifications Moses has, God tells Moses, I'm Yahweh, and all you need to know is that I'm going to be with you. I think it's interesting because, like I said, Moses was qualified. Uh, throughout the Bible, we find uh, many times that there are leaders that aren't particularly qualified. Um, the 12 disciples of Jesus come immediately to mind as guys that weren't necessarily overly qualified for the job that they were being called to do. Um, and, and with leaders, it's interesting that the biblical emphasis, there is a later emphasis, especially in the New Testament, of certain qualifications of leadership. So I'm not, not trying to diminish those qualifications for leadership or the standard that those set. But especially in this period of time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially before things are written down, the larger biblical emphasis is on not being disqualified. Not being disqualified. So there are things that could disqualify you from being a leader for God. There are things like that. But right now, the point is not Moses is qualified. I need you to do this because you're Moses and you're amazing and you could do all this stuff without me. The point is, he needs to have God. And we don't need to be qualified as young, long as Yahweh is with us. We ought, we ought not to disqualify ourselves, but we don't need to be qualified as long as God is with us. 
So at this point, Moses is also concerned with being very precise about who this God is, what God's name is, and what Moses has to do to talk to the people about all of this. And God is concerned about the exact same thing. God gives Moses the, the title, I am that I am. It could also be translated, I will be what I will be. And then God gives Moses his personal name, Yahweh. And scholars are divided on what the name Yahweh means. It seems to be a play on the past and present and future tenses of the verb to be in Hebrew. So you could say, um, I am the one who was, I am the one who am, and I am the one who always will be. Although, as some of the sources I read point out, that doesn't really encompass what all that means together. It's more like, I'm the existing one. I'm the one who always has been. Um, Rabbi David Foreman, who wrote a book called The Exodus You Almost Passed Over that we'll be using a lot in this series, he said we should understand the name of God as uh, the one who is unique or the one who is outside of time and space or the one who is off the board. And if you think about, um, he gives the funny example of uh, two tokens in Monopoly and they wonder, they go around the game board for a long period of time. One of the game pieces look at the other game piece and says, hey, do you believe in Parker? It says the game was made by Parker. Do you believe in Parker? And the other one's like, no, I've never encountered Parker. Well, why have you never encountered Parker? Because Parker's not in the game. Parker made the game. He's off the board. He's in a different dimension. We're looking for Parker in the wrong spot. And that's what the name Yahweh seems to indicate. If we're looking for him among the trees, or among the mountains, or among the sun in the moon and the stars even, uh, many of these things the ancient peoples worshipped, we're not going to find him because we're looking for him in the wrong spot. He's off the board. This brings us to a later episode. I want to skip ahead in the Exodus narrative here just really briefly. These are the last verses we're going to read today. Exodus chapter three, 6, excuse me, verse 1 through 3. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spake, spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Here's the important one here, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, it's, it's unclear exactly what God means by this. Does, it, does he mean that he never told them that his name was Yahweh? Uh, the name Yahweh gets used throughout the book of Genesis. And of course, that got written down after those events took place if we believe Moses wrote the book of Genesis, which I do. Uh, but So it is possible that this is literally true, that they never knew the name of Yahweh until Moses heard the name of Yahweh. It also could be that uh, the point that God is making is, is that the general experience of the people of Israel to that point had been maybe to know God as a very powerful force. That would be El or Elohim, uh, a God. You know, our God could be a God among many gods. He's a powerful force. Oh, and maybe the patriarchs understood him more as El Shaddai, the most powerful force, uh, almighty God. Uh, but now, in the moment of Exodus, what God is going to do is he's going to show him what the name Yahweh really means. It's going to be bigger than El or Elohim. It's going to be bigger than even El Shaddai. He's going to do a new thing. He's going to do a bigger thing. God is not just going to give the people of Israel his name. He's not just going to introduce himself and say, Hi, I'm Yahweh. How are you, Moses? Good to meet you. He's going to actually demonstrate what that name means. And the way he's going to demonstrate it is through this process of Exodus. Through this time of Exodus. 
So now the question that the Israelites face is simple. Are they going to accept Yahweh as their God? Are they going to accept Yahweh as their father? So let's think about the story as we've discussed it so far. God has orchestrated events to take care of his people. Uh, They had to deal with famine. They came down to Egypt to avoid the famine. Uh, But then they ended up in slavery in Egypt. His people, God's people, are now subject to a man who thinks he's a god. He's a polytheist, and he thinks he's one of those gods. Pharaoh believed that he was a god. They're surrounded by idolatrous, idolatrous Egypt, which had thousands of gods, and at least like 40 major gods that we we've hear a lot about in um, archaeological records. So they're surrounded by idolatry. They're tired of the brutality of slavery. And in all of that, they reach out to God in prayer. And what God begins to do is he begins to respond with power, grace, and mercy. Because what he does is he begins this process of exodus before the people have made any commitments, uh, before they even know what his plan is, before they sign on the dotted line to the covenant. He does all of this. And he does quite a number of things before we finally get to the covenant moment. Um, He desperately wants to be their father. He desperately wants a relationship with his people. And what we're going to see throughout this whole process is, in return, what he wants for them is for them to worship him and serve him, and through that, be a light to the nations. Through that, bring other people into a relationship with him. And what we're going to find is, even the signs and the wonders, even the plagues themselves, are going to serve a purpose in God demonstrating who he is and what he's about. Because it's not just that Yahweh is powerful, though he is powerful. It's not just that he's precise, though he is precise. It's not just that he's creator, even though he is the creator. The idea about Yahweh is that the powerful creator of the universe wants a relationship with his people. He wants to be a father to his firstborn son, Israel. But we're going to see that everyone's welcome. If they're willing to treat the family correctly, treat the family right. So Yahweh defines himself in the context of all that we've seen this morning. He defines himself as the God who hears the suffering of his people and will make everything right in the end, even if he doesn't always act in the moment like we want him to or expect him to. And that's really the tension that we find between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Exodus and this burning bush, fire, fiery moment in chapter 3. And what we see beyond, really, in the book of Exodus, where God shows up time and time again in very extravagant, powerful, visible ways. There's a tension here between chapters 1 and 2 and the rest of the book. God is still the God and father of his people when they're facing slavery in Egypt. Uh, Hundreds of years later, when they go into exile in Assyria, the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom goes into Babylon, he's still the God of the Exodus in those moments later. He's still the God who showed up but he's also the God who waits. He's also the God that works in subtler ways. So Yahweh does define himself as the God who delivers his people from these terrible circumstances. But even when he isn't parting seas, even when he isn't uh, bringing plagues, even when he isn't showing up on a mountain with fire and trumpets and loud voices and all the above, God is still working in midwives and mothers, and even at times Pharaoh's daughter. Yahweh is Yahweh our healer. He is the God who heals. And he's also the God who changes our hearts 
slowly, sometimes almost imperceptibly, from the inside as we obey him and we do the simpler things in life. So the question for us this morning is not just, what do we do when God shows up in a big way? That's usually not the question we have to ask ourselves. When the waters part, when the armies of Egypt are behind us, there's not really much of a choice. You're going to do what God wants you to do. He wants you to walk forward. You're going to walk forward, right? That's not really much of a choice. The greater choice that we have is the question that we have to ask ourselves, what do we do when God doesn't show up the way that we'd expect? What happens when the waters don't part? So as we reflect on this this morning, how do we fit into the story? Well, I, I see a lot of parallels between uh, the lives that we live today and these first couple chapters of Exodus. The New Testament describes us as beginning our lives by being slaves, slaves to the powers of this world, slaves to their plans for us. We just finished talking about that in the book we just did in Ephesians, right? We grew up We were in slavery. Well, who else was in slavery? The people of God here in Exodus. So that's where we start. We start in slavery. Uh, We start being tempted to think that we can choose right and wrong for ourselves. It's what Adam and Eve thought they could do. It's not the right option. Just as Yahweh extended himself to his firstborn son Israel and brought them out through the Exodus, Yahweh has now sent his firstborn son Jesus providing a way of escape or exodus for us through his grace, mercy, and love. Just like he reached out to them before they deserved it, he reached out to us before we deserved it too. He gave us Jesus while we were still dead in our sins, as we read earlier in Romans. Just as they began their relationship with God by reaching out to prayer in the midst of their captivity, in the midst of their frustration, in the midst of all the things that they were dealing with, they reached out to God in prayer, We begin our relationship with Yahweh by what? Reaching out in prayer. Begging for his help in our time of need. And today we see that God, Yahweh, wants to be our father too. And as we develop a relationship with God, we find that we too are called to be a kingdom of priests. We too are called to share this family love with those around us. But to do this, to get started on this journey, we have to recognize a couple things. We have to recognize that we are enslaved and, that, enslaved and that we need help. We must recognize that we are not our own gods. So the fundamental question facing us today and every day is the same exact question faced by the Israelites 3,500 years ago before they even knew that Moses was going to come and visit them and give them this choice. But the question that we have is the same as theirs. Will we accept Yahweh as our God? And do we still trust in him and believe in him when the sea's parting and when the sea's not parting? If we're ready to think about that and make that commitment, then we're ready to begin our own path to Exodus. When we meet people who are encountering the gospel for the first time, this is the decision that they have to make. Will they accept Yahweh as their God? Will they start on the path toward Exodus? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for um, the ways that you work in our lives. Father, we're, th- we're thankful for those uh, powerful, um, amazing moments where you display your might and um, you heal us and uh, you, you just take care of us in just really powerful, surprising ways.
Um, of course, we're so thankful for your son Jesus and how he embodied that. Um, but we're also thankful, Father, for the times when you work within us in our weakness, when, when we cry out to you and nothing's happening, or at least it doesn't seem like it. It's barely perceptible. Father, we thank you for your patience with us during those times of doubt, during those times of uh, deep reflection. We ask for, um, for more transformation in our lives. We ask for more uh, pure worship. We ask you for more, uh, for more from you, God. We ask for more of you in our lives. So as we go through this series, Father, just help to illuminate our eyes to the things that you want us to see and walk in and revel in uh, from the things that we can learn from your people from 3,500 years ago. So we're thankful for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.